yeah, so it's just sort of this thing. And so we'll always forever have that hilarious moment where my biggest public speaking nightmare uh, happened. And I did this whole thing. And part of strange, I mean, one thing was be here, but it was strangers and people that were coming to grieve. And here I am, yeah, I'm full display. So, um, yeah, awesome, lovely. So we are actually, believe it or not, one week away from wrapping this whole thing up. I mean, we have been in the book of Acts now for uh, 66 weeks. Now, it hasn't been a straight 66 weeks. We've taken a lot of breaks, and we've done some different things. But it has taken us two years uh, to get through every single word and every single verse. We haven't missed anyone. Even the hard ones and the ones that we, we wrestled with and the ones that we struggled with, even the ones a lot of times as, as a teacher, as a preacher, you kind of just want to skip over because it's either really difficult or you, you don't really, it doesn't preach real well. And so, you know, we just went through all of them. And I, I have really loved it. Um, but we are coming to an end and things are speeding up really quickly. And Luke is going to bring the whole book to a close uh, the last few months in just a matter of, of verses. And we're going to get halfway through chapter 28 today. And then uh, if everything goes great this week, we are going to wrap the whole thing up um, in, uh, on next Sunday. Um, but for those of you that have been here, have, haven't been here for a while, it's, it's been a wild ride. I mean, because Acts is one of those books that's not just about telling stories of the birth of the church. It's, it's really the very foundation of what you and I are called to be as followers of Jesus. If there's one book in, in the entire kind of canon of Scripture that, that is the epitome of who we are called to be, the sending nature of the church, it is it is this book. It is the call of the Christ follower. It's the call of our church. It's the call of the church, Big C, as we follow Jesus together. It's more than stories. It's a collective movement of what it looks like to mobilize and say, Jesus, I will go wherever you send me. I will do whatever you call me to do. I will be obediently surrender my heart and my life to you so that people can know the God that has changed my life. I mean, that at its very core, is the book of Acts. Jesus has changed me, and he has sent me into the world. That's the story of the church, right? The story of the church is not the maintenance of itself, the building of its own things to pat each other on the back and make sure that we're all feeling really good. The story of the church is the mobilizing of lives that have been radically changed by Jesus and the thrusting of them into the world, in the cracks of crevices of culture, into Judea and Samaria and Jerusalem and the very ends of the earth all over the place. That is the call of the church. The call of the church in Acts is not to centralize, right? Not to gather together in the biggest groups possible, to entertain ourselves with stories and stuff and coffees and things. But the story of the church in Acts is to take these lives and decentralize them, shoot them to the corners of the earth to say yes to Jesus. And at the great moments in life, to find community in those places where they can hold each other up, encourage each other, and then resend each other out. I mean, it is the call of the church. On some level, it's the exact opposite of everything we've built in the West, on some level. So for us, this is a continuing push and picture of what we should be as a church. And we're coming to the close. The last two and a half years in life of Paul have been really, really hard. 
And I, I say that, and it is probably the most extreme understatement because they have been more than hard. They have been marked by unbelievable hardships. So Paul returns to Jerusalem because he believes that the Holy Spirit has called him to go back there against the very wishes of his friends that say, don't go. They know that if Paul goes back to Jerusalem, there is violence and prison and death that waits for him there. But Paul looks at those friends, those people that love him and care for him, and he says, God has called me there. And they fully support him as he goes. And he goes back into Jerusalem and he's met with an angry riot, a mob of people that want him dead. And they seize him and they try and kill him. And the Romans who were in charge at the time actually rescue Paul by putting him under arrest. And they take him into the barracks to beat him and torture him and get him to talk and tell them why everybody hates him so much when Paul tells him that he's a Roman citizen. And so the, the commander in charge, a guy by the name of Lysias, takes Paul to the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, and he says, somebody tell me why you're so mad at this guy. And this riot ensues, and they begin to really grab Paul, and Lysias thinks that they're going to tear his arms literally off his body. And so he captures Paul again and takes him into the army barracks, saving his life from the hands of his own people, people that he knew part of the Sanhedrin. They arrest him and put him in the army barracks, and that night he's laying there, alone, arrested, surviving this sort of crazy riot two different times, taking his life. And Jesus himself shows up and stands near him and says, listen, take courage, don't be afraid, you're going to testify about me in Rome. Well, the next morning, they learn, Paul learns that there's a murder plot. That these same Jews that tried to kill him earlier had planted a, or kind of concocted a scheme to have Paul transferred. And while he was being transferred to stand trial, they would kill him and the Roman soldiers that were taking him. But Paul learns of this because he has a nephew in the city. And so he sneaks in and tells Paul, and Paul tells the commander, or the kid actually tells the commander. And the commander mobilizes 470 of Roman, uh, Roman soldiers, right? horseback, spearmen, infantry, and they march all the way to Caesarea, all the way down from Jerusalem in the middle of the night, getting Paul out of the city to go meet with the governor there, where Paul spends two years in jail, standing trial in front of three different groups of people, two governors and one king and the king's sort of sister lover, stands trial before them. And every single occasion, they can't find anything wrong. But instead of being set free, He's kept in jail. And five days turns into two years. And finally, at the end of all of this, the king that is in charge at the time basically says, you've wanted to go to Rome because Paul had kind of turned his case over, pled for, uh, to go stand trial before Caesar, who at the time was Nero, the most horrific emperor Rome would ever know. He said, because you're a Roman citizen, you appeal to Caesar, you're going to go. Instead of of setting Paul free after two years in jail, they put him on a boat with other prisoners. And he sails 2,000 miles from Caesarea all the way up, well, headed to Rome. And over the past few weeks, what we've seen is that that sail was not easy. In fact, they ran into treacherous weather and winds that blew them off course by hundreds of miles. And for the past 14 days, they have faced battering winds to where the boat was being torn apart and they pulled the lifeboat in that they were dragging behind them and 276 people on board and they took those lines and ran them under the boat trying to hold the planks of the ship together. And at the 14th night where they haven't seen the sun, when they haven't seen the moon, Paul gathers all of them together 
And he says, listen, I want to tell you something. Take courage because, because God, an angel of the Lord, appeared to me. God appeared to me and told me that I am testifying in Rome, reiterating what was told to him almost two and a half years now before. And the Lord also told me that all of you will survive, but the boat's going to crash. So we got that going for us, right? And then sure enough, as we saw last week, right, the boat crashes. It drives into the sandbar off the shore of this, this small island. The sailors actually knew they were getting close to land because they were professionals. And so they were taking sounding depth readings, and they realized that they were getting closer and closer. And they tried to escape. They tried to let the lifeboat over. But Paul told the Roman soldiers, you better stop those guys because if they all leave, nobody knows how to drive this thing, right? And so they cut the lifeboat loose, and the Roman soldiers stay, and they drop a bunch of anchors, and, and they end up going when daybreak comes, headed to this little beach, but they crash into a sandbar. And the boat begins to break apart by the waves. And so the Roman soldiers say, all right, kill all of the prisoners. Because as we learned, right, if a prisoner escaped, the Roman soldier that was in charge had to pay that prisoner's penalty, which most of those guys were headed to Rome because they were facing death. So instead of dying themselves, they say, kill them all. But Julius, who was the Roman soldier in charge, the centurion says, I like Paul. I don't want you to kill any of them. And he spares their lives. And so the Roman soldiers say, fine. Those of you that can swim, go for it. Those of you that can't, grab something and try and get there. And all 276 make it safely to shore, just as the Lord had said. Now I say all that because I don't know what your past two and a half years of life have looked like. But that's been Paul's life, bookend by his call from the Holy Spirit to go to Jerusalem, and then his call to stand trial or to testify in front of Caesar in Rome. Two and a half years that have been met by violence and hatred and imprisonment and accusations, right? And shipwrecks and winds and near starvation, 14 days without food. This is Paul's life. And what we're going to see today is an outpouring of God's incredible faithfulness. That after two and a half years of struggle and wrestling and stuff, God is going to show up in an incredible way. And we're going to look this morning at God's faithfulness, not only in the obvious and the tangible, but God's faithfulness in the shipwrecks of our life. So let's take a moment, let's turn to Acts 28, and then we'll just sort of pray, and we'll unpack those 16 verses uh, kind of quickly, because things are going to speed up. Uh, the next few weeks. This whole section is actually getting us to the end of the book. So, uh, But before we do that, let's just take a moment, let's pray. Let's ask God to teach our hearts this morning. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that all that history is, is really important, God, because and the reason I keep telling it week and week again is because I want to remind my own heart, God, that, that following you is not a guarantee that life is easy. It's not a promise that everything's going to work out and that we're going to be able to have all of our dreams come true and that you're going to bless us over and over again with things that we want and financial blessings and perfection and stuff and happy little things but the god oftentimes following you is well it's it's a mixture of seeing your blessing in both the beauty and in the shipwreck it's seeing your hand and fingerprint and movement in our life at the times when it's really easy and at the times when it's most difficult and so this morning, as we unpack what happens next, and as we look at it, God, I pray that you would impress on our hearts that you are faithful in every season and in every moment and in every breath of our life. Take a moment and just pray. Ask God to teach your heart this morning. Whatever you need 
to kind of say or whisper to make that your heart's cry. I just ask you just to do it this morning. Lord, just teach my heart. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you. Even if you've never met them or don't know their name, just pray that God would move in them. As I say each week, we want to be in the habit of praying for other people. We want to be a church that is not motivated by what I experience alone when I come in this place, but that I want to see other people encounter Jesus. So pray for somebody, even if you don't know them. Pray that God would move in them. God, you are faithful and you are good. And we ask that you would teach our hearts this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Acts 28. There are 28 chapters in the book of Acts. And we are in the last one. And things are coming to a close. And as we'll see next week, Acts doesn't end real well. It just sort of ends. And so there's not going to be a pretty little bow on our 67-week journey. There's just going to be an ending. And it's really, really interesting. But this moment, these 16 verses are going to get us to that place next week. So let's take a look. Once safely on shore, we found that the island was called Malta. The islanders showed us an unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all as it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, This man must be a murderer, for he escaped from the sea, and justice has not allowed uh, him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects, and the people expected him to swell up or die suddenly. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, a chief official of the island. He welcomed us into his home, and for three days he entertained us hospitably. His father was sick and in bed, suffering from a fever and dysentery, and Paul went to him to see him, and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. And when this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honored us in many ways, and when they were ready to sail, and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. After three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had been wintered on the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with a figurehead of twin gods, Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse and stayed there for three days, and from there we arrived in Regium, and the next day a south wind came up, and the following day we reached Puteoli. There we found some brothers who invited us to spend a week with them, and we came to Rome. The brothers there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as Forum from Appius and from the three taverns to meet us. And at the sight of these men, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. And when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. So four months really is, is really what's going to unfold from the moment they land on the beach in Malta to the moment Paul puts his foot in the sand of Rome. And Luke is escalating the story to get us to the end. But in these short verses, there is an incredible outpouring of God's faithfulness that is very evident after this two and a half years of struggle as Paul comes to Rome, will mark a th- almost three full years. And in these short few months, actually in these short few weeks, 
we're going to see an outpouring of God's grace and faithfulness like we haven't seen. And the reason I want to lift it up this morning is because it's really important for us to see that in the middle of all of these things, God is at work and his faithfulness never ends. But what happens is, is that the ship breaks apart and they all swim for it. And the angel of the Lord had told Paul that no one would die. And Paul told everybody that truth. 276 people aboard this real boat, not like a little kind of canoe thing that you probably have imagined that Jesus kind of put out on the Sea of Galilee with his 12 disciples, but like a real boat with anchors and sails, and it was a ship, and it had cargo. They had long since thrown all that over in the storm, if you remember. But that boat was driven into the sandbar, and it just sort of shattered. The waves just poured over the stern and broke it apart, and everybody jumped in the water in the middle of the storm, and now is what no, is November, in the middle of the winter, and it's freezing, and they're swimming to shore, and they have nothing. They have thrown everything over. All they most likely have is whatever they're wearing and whatever washes aboard or washes on shore from the ship, planks of wood, whatever. And they arrive on the shore at sort of daybreak, and it's freezing, and they ask the islanders, and they learn that they're on the island of Malta, and Malta is part of the sort of Sicilian province. It's actually 58 miles south of the island of Sicily, which is just off the, the south coast of, Ro- of, of Italy, and is about 500 miles still <clears throat> from Rome. But Luke tells us that they were greeted by the islanders who showed them unusual hospitality. Now remember, this group of 276 people is not just made up of like normal people that are just passengers or sailors. It has Roman soldiers and prisoners. Prisoners that are headed to Rome to await trial in front of Nero, right? So this is an odd group of people to be hospitable towards, right? It's not like you welcome four or five people into your house and say, hey, I'm sorry your car broke down. Stay with us for a week. 276 people that have nothing and say we're starving and freezing and thirsty. And it says the islanders showed them unusual hospitality, meaning most likely they helped take care of their needs. Well, they built this giant fire, right? Because it's freezing and it's in November and you're wet and you're washing ashore and they built this fire and Paul is gathering brush, right? Because everybody was probably doing something to help out. Paul gathers brush and he throws this heap of brush on the fire. And as he does, this viper, which the islanders obviously know is poisonous, right? This viper is driven out by the heat and it says that it fastens itself onto Paul's hand, meaning it bites and hangs on. And all the islanders kind of look at each other and like, oh, that's not good, right? Because they know that this snake is poisonous, They've lived there their whole lives. And Paul's got this thing dangling from his hand, right? And so here's what they say to each other. They say, well, obviously he, must, he was a murderer, right? Because there's prisoners here in this group. Obviously this guy was a murderer because even though he escaped the shipwreck, justice, which is actually capital J, which was in kind of a, a mention of the God of justice, right, has not let Paul escape death. Right, So, in other words, in my Roman mythology, in my Roman sort of fate of the gods, Paul has escaped the shipwrecks, but the gods have punished him by having to get bit by a snake. Right, So they were like, surely he's a murderer. So Paul shakes the snake off, and it falls into the fire, and he just sort of stands around. Everyone's just kind of waiting on him to just die. Like, I don't know what we're going to do about that. He's going to die. Or he's going to swell up and then die. And they're all just staring at him. Nothing happens. And in a matter of moments, they go, well, he's not a murderer. He's obviously a god. 
right? They switch gears from murder to God in a matter of seconds because God's miraculous movement, Paul didn't die from the snake bite. Now, this isn't actually all that uncommon. It happened a few times in the book of Acts. You may remember back to chapter 14 when Paul goes to Lystra and they begin, they, they actually, his whole group there, they heal this guy. And the people in Lystra say, you are a God. And they bring all these bulls down from the temple of Zeus to sort of worship and sacrifice to Paul. And Paul and his companions freak out. And they start tearing their clothes. And they're like, we're not gods. We worship the one. And they went through this whole thing. And then the people decided they were going to kill him. And so they went from God to we're going to kill you. And they drug Paul outside of town. They stoned him to death. They actually thought he was dead. You may remember this. And they left him there. And the end of the verse says that Paul wasn't dead and he got up and Barnabas and him left the city the next morning. I know. Same thing. But this must not have been as big a display. Maybe the islanders are just kind of like, well, I must be a god or whatever because Paul doesn't seem to even respond to it. He just snake, shakes the snake off and, and it, in the fire and Paul doesn't die. And we learn that there's this guy named Publius who is the chief official of the whole island. Like he's in charge. Right? I don't know what that title would be, but you know, that chief official term kind of really just means he was the one that was in charge. So we don't know if he was a governor, if he was sort of a, you know, kind of a magistrate or whatever, but he was in charge of the island. And his house is nearby, and he takes a group, probably not all 276, but a group, a uh, contingent of these people, and he shows them for three days sort of this incredible hospitality, invites them in. I mean, remember, you've got nothing. You're in the middle of November, washed upon the shore in this small island, and and uh, the chief official takes you in. And as Paul's there, he's part of this sort of contingent, most likely because the people thought he was pretty magnificent, if not a god. And so they want to introduce him to, to Publius. And they invite him over. And as Paul's there, he, he meets this guy's dad. And this guy's dad is sick. He's got a fever and he has dysentery. And that word dysentery really can mean a whole host of things. But really what it points to is a severe problems with your stomach, right? Like, You've got a bacteria, you've got a, some kind of parasite, and you are, you are not having a good time. And, uh, and he is sick, and he's got this massive fever. And these are things that you and I would go to the clinic and take an antibiotic for, but in those days, these are things that killed you, right? So if you drank bad water, you would die. There's no take an antibiotic and get past this. And so he is sick. And it says that Paul goes to him, and he prays, and he lays hands on him, and God heals him. And everybody is, is astounded. And so all the sick from the island start coming. And they bring all the people that are sick. And Paul and his companions, which are only two other Christians in the past four months, Luke and Aristarchus, because they joined Paul as he got on that boat. They showed up and they said, hey, we're going. Me and you and Paul, we're going to Rome and we're with you. And they sailed with Paul. We're there. And there's just three of them. And these guys are being used by God to heal the island sick. And Luke says that they showed, they honored us in so many different ways. And it was time to go. Three months later, about February probably, when the sailing season opened up again, they found a ship that was headed for Rome, right? Because theirs is no longer working. And so they found a ship that was headed for Rome, and they decided that it was time to set sail. The season was opening back up. The winds were becoming favorable. The weather was opening. And it says the islanders furnished them for their journey. I mean, imagine the impact you've now had on people's lives where you take these people, and I don't know if all 276 went, but maybe a large group of them, and you furnish them for the last 500-mile leg, which will be by water and actually by land, to get to Rome. And they furnish them with supplies and clothes and stuff. 
and, and they go down to this port, and they find this boat. It had been winterized there, and it's getting ready to go, and they board it. And Luke kind of gives some interesting details about how it's got these carved uh, kind of images of Castor and Pollux, which in Roman mythology are the, the sons of Jupiter, which is really the sons of Zeus, and they are the patron gods of sailors, right? So Paul or Luke's just kind of letting them know that we are actually headed to Rome, right, on this pagan boat full of sailors that worship pagan gods. And we board this boat, and we set sail, and we land in Syracuse, where we stay for a few days, which is 60 miles north. And then we sail again, and we land in this place called Regium, right? And then the southern wind comes up, and it's a great southern wind, and we can make it in two days. They sail 200 miles in two days uh, from Regium to Puteoli. And when they get there with this great southern wind, you got to remember these winds are a big deal because they have been battered by them. They get there, and they're greeted by believers. And this, this sort of Roman port. Now, Puzzioli was actually the main port of Rome. It's 75 miles south, and it's a journey by land, but it was the main port. And they were greeted by believers. Now, a lot of people think that these believers were actually a result of the ministry of Priscilla and Aquila, who we met back in Corinth, that were from Italy. And Paul had befriended them and shared the gospel with them, and they had gone to Ephesus with Paul, and they returned to Italy, and they began to share the gospel. Paul's life and impact, and, and they're met by believers, and they hadn't seen any in a long time, right? And they stay a week. Julius, the Roman soldier, lets them stay a week with these believers. And when it's finally time to go, there's a really famous road that's still there that actually leads from this port all the way up to Rome, and they walk the 75 miles. And as they're walking, they're met by other believers that had heard that Paul was there, and they came from two cities. One city was called Three Taverns, because I guess there were three taverns there. And uh, they're met by guys from there, and they're met by guys from this, this other city, and one was 43 miles away, one was 33 miles away, and they all walk to meet Paul, and they walk in together. And it says that as Paul met them, he was encouraged by the sight of these believers coming to walk with him. And they all walk in to Rome, right? Under guard with this group of believers to this magnificent, I mean, Rome was the most magnificent city in the known world. And they walk into Rome, and instead of being put under arrest and put in prison, Paul is allowed to rent his house, and he's allowed to stay there under Roman guard. So those four months, right, get us to Paul in prison, essentially his own prison, house arrest with a Roman guard in Rome. And what I find really remarkable about this sort of section is that the past two and a half years, or really now three years once Paul enters Rome, but the past two and a half years before the shipwreck, Paul's life is marked with, and we've talked about this for the past three weeks in a row, actually, is marked with struggle. It's marked with violence. It's marked with fear. It's marked with loneliness. It's marked with shipwrecks and imprisonment. It's marked with horrible things. And there are times in the middle of that that we have said to each other, as I've kind of taught through this, that where is God? I mean, seriously. Like this, when I said yes to the Lord and Paul begins to follow God and it leads with, with violent riots and people that want to kill you and torture and arrests and trial after trial where you are innocent but still put in prison and people that are putting murder plots twice, two murder plots against you by your own people only not to be set free but put on a boat where you run into crazy winds that blow you into the middle of the Adriatic Sea where you're battered for 14 days and end up shipwrecked and then bit by snakes. Like this, really, Jesus, seriously? Like that is what is at the cry of my heart. 
Like I thought when I said I would follow you, you would just abundantly pour blessing on me, right? I mean, that's the promise of a health and wealth gospel that says, hey, if we have enough faith, God makes all of our wildest dreams come true. You just got to read scripture to realize that there is a bankrupt theology there, right? God's promise is never that. God's promise is always his glory, always. But for whatever reason, in this little four-month stretch, God is going to outpour, I mean outpour his grace and faithfulness in about 15 different ways, all on Paul and his companions. And I want to lift them up to you because I want you to see them. Because after this sort of dry spell, right, there's these amazing sort of visible evidence of God's faithfulness and grace. And I'm not going to kind of, kind of, kind of um, expound on them too much. I read them already, but I just want you to see them, right? And the first one, of course, is they all arrive in Malta safely, right? God had told them they would do that, and they all wash on shore, all 276. I mean, we know there's some that aren't swimmers, which I, don't be a sailor if you can't swim, right? I mean, just rule number one. But the Roman soldiers basically say, hey, if you swim, good. If you don't, get a piece of wood. That's their big advice. Like, just grab it and go. Well, all 276 make it to shore safely, right? The islanders show them unusual kindness. This is not common for Paul. If you've watched any of the three journeys, the missionary journeys that we've explored over the past six or seven months, you will see that every time Paul shows up in a city, what happens? They all freak out and try and kill him. I mean, that is the story of his life. He has not shown kindness, but for some reason he lands on this island and they show him unusual kindness. And all of the companions and all of the sailors and all of the people and all the prisoners, they show kindness towards, right? When I mean, if you, these people wash upon your shore. I mean, imagine for a moment if a bus shows up and overturns and everybody shows up in your front yard and it wasn't just a bus. It was actually a bus coming from the Correctional Institute. And there's some prison guards, but the prisoners are all still there and they're sitting in your front yard, right? You'd be like, uh, all right, how long are y'all here for? We'd call the police. They show them unusual kindness, which is surprising. They help them build a fire, Right? Then God does this sort of incredible thing by healing Paul from this viper bite. I mean, maybe to demonstrate to the islanders that Paul was something significant or that God was really great or whatever, but just when you think things aren't and can't get any worse, right? I've, I've literally crashed this boat. I've been imprisoned. I've done all these things. And now all I'm trying to do is gather some wood so that people don't die and I'm bit by a snake. I mean really, right? It's like life has had its series of things that just keep pounding us and pounding us and pounding us and, and, and you're just over it and you get that flat tire, right? Or just when you've poured out your last dollar, your hot water heater goes out or you just run into that thing and you're just like, are you kidding me? And there's a snake hanging from your hand, right? But God, in this incredible way, right, is faithful and nothing happens to him. And he actually uses that most likely to get into Publius's house because the islanders are like, well, he may not be a murderer. He's a god. And so we probably need to introduce him to this guy who's really important. We want you to meet this guy who gets bit by vipers and doesn't die. And so he goes to this guy's house, right? And he shows them incredible hospitality. I mean, here's this chief magistrate of this Roman island and Paul is a prisoner of Rome, right? He's not just Paul the apostle. These guys aren't believers. 
They are Roman citizens, and they are welcoming Roman prisoners into their house. And what is more, even on top of that blessing, Publius invites Paul to meet his dad, who is dying. And in God's incredible way, God, Paul prays, and God heals Publius' father. And then the rest of the kind of island, the rest of the, the citizens, the community, they hear about this. And they come out, and Luke and Paul and Aristarchus, through God's incredible miraculous movement, they heal all of the sick. And then Luke says they honored us in many ways, meaning they gave us things that we didn't have. They brought us food and clothing, and the the islanders and the people took care of these prisoners and these people, these foreigners, these Jewish people. And then when it was time to go, for three months they did this, right? And then when it was time to go, Hey, we gotta go. We gotta we gotta sail. We gotta find a boat. But we don't really have anything. There's no we don't have a way of earning money, making money. I mean, there's nothing, right? When well, it's time to go, Luke says they furnished us with all the supplies we needed. So the islanders came together and they gave them probably bread and grain and clothes and water and stuff to sail five hundred miles and walk seventy five. All that they would need to finish the journey. And then they set sail, and instead of having opposition after opposition after opposition, they get to Regium, and there's this incredible south wind. Now, the winds were a big deal, right? Because the wind is what drove them off course from the island of Crete, hundreds of miles out of the way into the middle of the Adriatic Sea, and pounded the boat for months, and then in a huge storm for 14 days, and nearly killed them all. Well, all of a sudden, they have this favorable south wind, and they sail 200 miles in two days, which, I don't know, I'm not a sailor, but it sounds like a lot, right? So they sail all that way with this great south wind. And when they arrive in that city, that port, that, that Roman sort of entry port, they're not greeted by more soldiers that are ready to take them into custody and usher them to Rome. They're greeted by believers, They hadn't seen believers in four months, and they are greeted by Roman Christians that we're not even sure how they became Christians. Paul had yet to even get to Rome, and he was the chief vocal point for the gospel around the world. And so most people think that Paul had shared the gospel with Priscilla and Aquila, and they had returned to Italy, and they were sharing the gospel that Paul had shared with them. And there were circles of believers in all these Roman cities. And what it would be like to step off that boat after having gone through what we've gone through and had people that said, we love Jesus. Stay with us. And then Julius lets them stay there for a week. And when it's finally time to go to Rome, right? When it's finally time to go to Rome, they start walking. And as they're walking down this road, this long road, they are met by two different groups of believers. One that came from 43 miles away and one that came from 33 miles away all to greet Paul and walk him in to the city. And it says that Paul was encouraged and he thanked God. So here's Paul walking with this group, and I don't know how many, maybe it was 10, maybe it was 15, maybe it was 20, maybe whatever. But they're walking down this road now into Rome, and when he gets there, instead of being arrested, he's allowed to rent his place and wait his trial for Caesar. And that's going to become incredibly important next week because God is going to use that house to change the world. And it's a remarkable story. So in four months, we have 11 or 12 
outpourings of evidence of God's incredible faithfulness where for two and a half years we have seen God be somewhat silent except for those nights in the middle of the darkest storm, in the middle of the army barracks where the the Lord showed up and would speak to Paul's heart except for those moments. We saw hardship after hardship after hardship after hardship after hardship. And now all of a sudden in these four months we are seeing the sort of outpouring of faithfulness of God. And it's really easy for us to sit on this side and see those things and see them as evidence. And I can go through that list, and it's like 11 or 12 strong and of these blessing after blessing after blessing after blessing and say, look how God is moving, right? But what's really hard in all of this is to look at the past two and a half years and try and see what God was doing. Because we're quick to see God show up with the south wind. We're quick to say, thank you, God, for showing up as I'm greeted by believers on the other side of the porter. We're quick to say, thank you, God, when I've had a tough time and people show up and they, they bring me food or they take me out or they do something nice for our family. Like, that's evidence of God. But it's really hard to be able to see God's move in the middle of the shipwreck, in the middle of the murder plot, in the middle of the seven-month alone in prison never knowing when that end is coming. But there's a really cool thing that happens in the next few months. And that thing is, from that house in Rome, that house where he is paying his own way, actually, a lot of believers are sending him money to pay for his way there because the community just loved so well. But as he's under house arrest, he actually writes the letter to the church in Philippi. And he's writing the letter to this church that he loved, this group of people that he loved dearly. And he writes their letter from that house in Rome. And that letter, and we've gone through it about three years ago. We went through every word of it. That letter is from the deepest recesses of Paul's heart. And he says something in chapter 4 that is incredibly remarkable to them, especially when you think of all that Paul has gone through. And this is why I love Scripture so much, not just because it's incredible, but because when you know it, it adds life and depth. Because we've read Philippians, but you haven't read Philippians in the shadow of what Paul has gone through over the past three years, right? We read Philippians as, hey, here's a letter, be encouraged, be strengthened, be whatever, love you, Paul, peace, right? But when you know what Paul has gone through, shipwrecks and beatings and all of those things and believers and sailings and viper bites and he writes this letter to them in the shadow of that not five years later with a lot of perspective looking back and saying wow god was really great but in the next few weeks or months paul pins this letter to the philippians and in chapter four this is what he says to them he said listen rejoice in the lord always i will say it again rejoice let your gentleness be evident to all the lord is near do not be anxious about anything But in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now think about those words for a minute. And think about what Paul has been walking through with his life. So church, Philippians, listen to me. I'm writing you from from jail, essentially. I'm waiting to basically stand trial before Nero, where I'm pretty sure I will die. And I'm going to tell you this. And the Philippians were facing, I mean, if you remember, they were facing civil unrest. They were facing deep poverty and a massive shortage of food. And Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. 
Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the God whose peace surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And as I thought about those words, and I thought about as Paul sitting there, how hard it must have been, at least it would have been for me to say, listen, rejoice in the Lord always. There were moments on that boat months earlier where the waves had become so strong that the people were so afraid that they wouldn't eat. In fact, Paul gathers them all together. We saw this last week. And he begs them to eat food, and he actually demonstrates it. He eats it in front of them. Because for 14 days, none of them had even eaten. They were so afraid that they were going to die. Paul is not immune to all of that. Even though God has told him he will survive, you are in the middle of the most violent storm you have ever seen, and everybody around you, all 276 of them believe they're going to die. In fact, the sailors believe the boat's going to crash so much that they try and escape in the lifeboat and leave you to die. There was that moment. that Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. There's the moment after the second trial of your life where you're facing the death sentence where the governor... Festus, right, looks at you and says, I can't find anything wrong, but I'm going to have to leave you in prison. And your heart sort of just deflates. The moment when you learn of the second murder plot, the second betrayal of your people, the people that you had once spent your entire life with have come up with a plan to kill you again. There's a moment where you turn and instead of being set free, they march you with a Roman soldier onto a boat and head you to stand trial, which you asked for, kind of on you, in front of the most brutal emperor Rome would ever know. The, oh, the guy who launched, right, launched the single greatest wave of persecution in all of human history in one single breath that would cost thousands of of lives. You're going to stand before that guy. Rejoice in the Lord always. And it's not that rejoicing, right, that's like, yay, everything's happy, but like there's something bigger here. And Paul launches from that into this thought. How do you go about being joyful? Not about rubbing a smile on your broken face, but it begins here. Do not be anxious about anything, right? Don't worry. Anxiety is that divided heart, right? Now be anxious, but in everything, with prayer and petition. Prayer is our communication with God. Petition is how we cry out to Him, right? Do what? Present your requests and do it with thanksgiving. In other words, God can hear them. So I'm going to find joy, not because I have answers, but because God invites me to cry out to Him. He invites me to pray. He invites me to shout my prayers and requests. But he says in the middle of that, don't worry. Don't be anxious. Why? Not because everything's going to work out and the boat's not going to crash. Look, the boat crashed. Not because the storms won't come. The storm came. Right? We're not anxious because those bad things won't happen. We're anxious because the God that we serve is faithful in the shipwreck and he's faithful in the reunion. He's faithful in the good, 
to our heart, and he's faithful in our most deepest fears. What does God do? Instead of telling Paul and Paul telling the Philippians that everything is going to be fine, what does he promise? That the peace of God, which transcends understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And I find this remarkable because what Paul is saying is that when you finally put all your hope and trust in Jesus, the ship may still break apart. You're still going to wash ashore. You may even get bit by a snake. Heck, as Paul would tell you, you may even die. But the peace of God, which doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't make sense, will guard your heart. In the middle of life's biggest struggles and fears and failures, truly trusting Jesus is really welcoming the peace of God into our heart. That, God, I should be a disaster. I should be petrified. I should be afraid. But I trust you. And I believe that you have a bigger plan and a bigger movement, and I want to be in that. And so let your peace, not your problem solving and not my issues going away, but let your peace do what? Guard my heart and my mind. You know what that means? To guard your heart and mind from the lie of the world, the lie of the enemy that says God is not there, God has abandoned you, God has walked out on you, you are all alone. The peace of God guards our hearts from that lie because in moments of shipwrecks in two and a half years of walking alone our hearts want to say God where are you in that moment of our darkest night we want to cry out God where are you but the peace of God which doesn't make sense guards our heart from that lie because God is as faithful in the shipwreck as he is in the reunion on Puteoli because that shipwreck was part of the movement to get Paul's feet in the sand of Rome. It's not easy to swallow. It's not easy to comprehend or understand. But that storm was part of God's incredible movement of grace to bring about his glory and not Paul's comfort. As followers of Christ, our heart should cry for God's glory and not our comfort. But I want you to see today that even in the obvious, the 12, 15 things that are sitting there that are so evidence of God's faithfulness, even in the obvious, even the things that we see and say, south winds and blessings of islanders and, and not dying from steak bites, even in those obvious things, God is faithful. But also even in those moments where things seem the darkest, in the middle of riots and violence, and shipwrecks, and storms in your life, that God is as faithful in the shipwreck as he is in the reunion. In the middle of these moments, whatever you're facing, rejoice in the Lord always. I'm not talking about high-fiving and happy thoughts. I'm talking about finding a joy that says, God, I need your peace peace that transcends understanding that will guard my heart from the lie that I want to believe. You are faithful in the shipwreck and you are faithful in the reunion. And I anchor my life to that truth. Let's pray together. God, I thank you for your incredible faithfulness. Lord, it is really hard 
for all of us to believe that. It's really hard to believe your faithfulness in our deepest struggle and our darkest night. But it is such a beautiful truth. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything but everything through prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your request to God. And that the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, may guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God, those words penned from Paul after what he has walked through, they reassure my heart that, God, you are faithful. And that even in the most difficult moments or the most just sort of wavering seas, you are faithful. And I can find joy in you. And your peace will guard my heart from the lie that I want to believe that says I'm alone that says things aren't going to work out the way I need them to, and you have abandoned me. But the God, you have this intricately amazing plan that sometimes involves heartache, that sometimes involves hurt, that sometimes involves a whole host of unanswered questions. But you are as faithful in the shipwreck as you are in the reunion. You are as faithful in the wind that blows our lives seemingly off course as you are in the wind that pushes us north to a destination. You are in the same wind. You are the same God. And you are always at work for your glory. So God, let us let go of our fears and trust that you, God, in the middle of the storm, are as faithful as you are when we can see you so clearly. God, you are As we stand and close our time in worship, I pray, God, that you would make that the cry of our heart. And we ask this in Jesus' risen name. Amen. Let's stand together and close our time in worship. (laughs)